All right, so we are going to be reading Stargirl chapters 6 through 10. Uh, Stargirl is written by Jerry Spinelli and published by Scholastic. Chapter 6. Hillary herself set the stage the day before. In the middle of lunch, she got up from her table and walked over to Stargirl. For half a minute, she just stood behind Stargirl's chair. Silence everywhere except for tinklings in the kitchen. Only Stargirl was still chewing. Hillary moved around to the side. I'm Hillary Kimball, she said. Stargirl looked up. She smiled. She said, I know. My birthday is tomorrow. I know. Hillary paused. Her eyes narrowed. She jabbed her finger in Stargirl's face. Don't try singing to me. I'm warning you. Only those at nearby tables heard Stargirl's faint reply. I won't sing to you. Hillary gave a satisfied smirk and walked off. From the moment we arrived at school the next day, the atmosphere bristled like cactus paddles. When the buzzer sounded for first lunch, we leaped for the doors. We swarmed into the food lines. We raced through our choices and hurried to our seats. Never had we moved so fast, so quietly. At most, we whispered. We sat. We ate. We were afraid to crunch our potato chips, afraid we might miss something. Hillary was first to enter. She marched in, leading her girlfriends like an invading general. In the food line, she smacked items onto her tray. She glared at the cashier. While her friends scanned the crowd for Stargirl, Hillary stared ferociously at her sandwich. Wayne Parr came in and sat several tables away, as if even he was afraid of her on this day. Stargirl finally came in. She went straight to the food line, blithely smiling as usual. Both she and Hillary seemed unaware of each other. Stargirl ate. Hillary ate. We watched. Only the clock moved. A kitchen staffer stuck her head out over the conveyor belt and yelled, Trays! A voice barked back, Shut up! Stargirl finished her lunch. As usual, she stuffed her wrappings into her paper bag, carried the bag to the paper-only can by the tray return window, and dropped it in. She returned to her seat. She picked up the ukulele. We stopped breathing. Hillary stared at her sandwich. Stargirl began strumming and humming. She stood. She strolled between the tables, humming, strumming. Three hundred pairs of eyes followed her. She came to Hillary Kimball's table and kept on walking, right up to the table where Kevin and I sat with the hot seat crew. She stopped and she sang happy birthday. It was Hillary's name at the end of the song, but true to her word of the day before, she did not sing it to Hillary. She sang it to me. She stood at my shoulder and looked down at me, smiling and singing, and I didn't know whether to look down at my hands or up at her face, so I did some of each. My face was burning. When she finished, the students burst from their silence with wild applause. Hillary Kimball stomped from the lunchroom. Kevin looked up at Stargirl and pointed at me and said what everyone must have been thinking. Why him? Stargirl tilted her head as if studying me. She grinned mischievously. She tugged on my earlobe and said, he's cute, and walked off. I was feeling nine ways at once, and they all ended up at the touch of her hand on my ear. 
until Kevin reached over and yanked the same earlobe. This keeps getting more interesting, he said. I think it's time to go see Archie. Chapter 7 A.H. Archibald Hapwood, Brewbaker, lived in a house of bones. Jaw bones, hip bones, femurs. There were bones in every room, every closet, on the back porch. Some people have stone cats on their roofs. On his roof, Archie Brubaker had a skeleton of Monroe, his deceased Siamese. Take a seat in his bathroom and you found yourself facing the faintly smirking skull of Doris, a prehistoric creodent. Open the kitchen cabinet where the peanut butter was kept and you were face to fossil face with an extinct fox. Archie was not morbid. He was a paleontologist. The bones were from digs he had done throughout the American West. Many were rightly his, found in his spare time. Others he collected for museums, but slipped into his own pocket or knapsack instead. Better to sit in my refrigerator than disappear in a drawer in some museum basement, he would say. When he wasn't digging up old bones, Archie Brubaker was teaching at universities in the East. He retired at the age of 65. When he was 65, his wife, Ada May, died. At 67, he moved himself and his bones west to join the other fossils. He chose his home for two reasons. One, its proximity to the high school. He wanted to be near kids. He had none of his own. And two, Senor Saguaro. Senor Saguaro was a cactus, a 30-foot-tall giant that towered over the tool shed in the backyard. It had two arms high on the trunk. One stuck straight out, the other made a right turn upward, as if waving adios. The waving arm was green from the elbow up. All else was brown, dead. Much of the thick, leathery skin along the trunk had come loose and crumpled in a heap about the massive foot. Senor Saguaro had lost his pants. Only his ribs, thumb-thick, vertical timbers held him up. Elf owls nested in his chest. The old professor often talked to Senor Saguaro, and to us. He was not certified to teach in Arizona, but that did not stop him. Every Saturday morning, his house became a school. Fourth graders, twelfth graders, all were welcome. No tests, no grades, no attendance record, just the best school most of us had ever gone to. He covered everything from toothpaste to tapeworms and somehow made it all fit together. He called us the loyal order of the stone bone. He gave us homemade necklaces. The pendant was a small fossil bone strung on rawhide. Years before, he had told his first class, call me Archie. He never had to say it again. After dinner that day, Kevin and I walked over to Archie's. Though the official class convened on Saturday morning, kids were welcome any time. My school, he said, is everywhere and always in session. We found him as usual on the back porch, rocking and reading. The porch, bathed in the red-gold light of sunset, faced the Maricopas. Archie's white hair seemed to give off a light of its own. The moment he saw us, he put down his book. Students, welcome! Archie, we said, then turned to greet the great cactus as visitors were expected to do. Senor Saguaro, we saluted. We sat on rockers. The porch was full of them. So, men, he said, business or pleasure? Bafflement, I said. There's a new girl in school. He laughed. Stargirl. Kevin's eyes popped. You know her? 
Know her, he said. He picked up his pipe and loaded it with cherry sweet tobacco. He always did this when settling in for a long lecture or conversation. Good question. He lit the pipe. Let's say she's been on the porch here quite a few times. White smoke puffed like Apache signals from the corner of his mouth. I was wondering when you'd start asking questions. He chuckled to himself. Bafflement. Good word. She is different, isn't she? Kevin and I burst into laughter and nods. At that moment, I realized how much I had been craving Archie's confirmation. Kevin exclaimed, Like another species? Archie cocked his head as if he had just caught the sound of a rare bird. The pipe stem anchored a wry grin. A sweet scent filled the air about our rocking chairs. He stared at Kevin. On the contrary, she is one of us, most decidedly. She is us more than we are us. She is, I think, who we really are, or were. Archie talked that way sometimes, in riddles. We didn't always know what he was saying, but our ears didn't much care. We just wanted to hear more. As the sun dipped below the mountains, it fired a final dart at Archie's flashing eyebrows. She's homeschooled, you know. Her mother brought her to me. I guess she wanted a break from playing teacher. One day a week. Four, five, yes, five years now. Kevin pointed. You created her. Archie smiled and puffed. No, that was done long before me. Some people are saying she's kind of an She's some kind of alien sent down here from Alpha Centauri or something, said Kevin. He chuckled, but not too convincingly. He half believed it. Archie's pipe had gone out. He relit it. She's anything but. She's an earthling, if there ever was one. So, it's not just an act, said Kevin. An act? If anybody's acting, it's us. She's as real as... He looked around. He picked up the tiny wedge-like skull of Barney, a 60-million-year-old Paleocene rodent, and held it up. As real as Barney! I felt a a little jolt of pride at having reached this conclusion myself. But the name, said Kevin, leaning forward. Is it real? The name? Archie shrugged. Every name is real. That's the nature of names. When she first showed up, she called herself Pocket Mouse. Then Mud Pie? Then what? Holy Golly, I believe. Now, Stargirl. The word came out whispery. My throat was dry. Archie looked at me. Whatever strikes her fancy. Maybe that's how names ought to be, huh? Why be stuck with just one your whole life? What about her parents, said Kevin? Well, what about them? What do they think? Archie shrugged. I guess they agree. What do they do, Kevin said breathe, eat, clip their toenails. Kevin laughed. You know what I mean. Where do they work? Mrs. Carraway, until a few months ago, was Stargirl's teacher. I understand she also makes costumes for movies. Kevin poked me. The crazy clothes. Her father, Charles, works. He smiled at us. Where else? Mechatronics, we said in chorus. I said it with wonder, for I had imagined something more exotic. Kevin said, so where is she from? A natural question in a city as young as Micah. Nearly everybody had been born somewhere else. Archie's eyebrows went up. Good question. He took a long pull on the pipe. Some would say Minnesota, but in her case, he let out the smoke, his face disappearing in a gray cloud. A sweet haze veiled the sunset. 
cherries roasting in the maricopas, he whispered, Rara Avis. Archie, said Kevin, you're not making a lot of sense. Archie laughed. Do I ever? Kevin jumped up. I want to put her on hot seat. Dorko Borlock here doesn't want to. Archie studied me through the smoke. I thought I saw approval, but when he spoke, he merely said, Work it out, men. We talked until dark. We said adios to Senor Seguaro. On our way out, Archie said, More to me than to Kevin. I thought, You'll know her more by your questions than by her answers. Keep looking at her long enough. One day, you might see someone you know. Chapter 8 The change began around Thanksgiving. By December 1st, Stargirl Carraway had become the most popular person in school. How did that happen? Was it the cheerleading? The last football game of the season was her first as a cheerleader. The grandstand was packed. Students, parents, alumni. Never had so many people come to a football game to see a cheerleader. She did all the regular cheers and routines and more. In fact, she never stopped cheering. While the other girls were taking breaks, she went on jumping and yelling. She roamed areas that had always been ignored. The far ends of the grandstand, the spectators behind the goalposts, the snack bar parents found themselves with their own arm-pumping cheerleader. She ran straight across the 50-yard line and joined the other team's cheerleaders. We laughed as they stood there with their mouths open. She cheered in front of the player's bench and was shooed away by a coach. At halftime, she played her ukulele with the band. In the second half, she got acrobatic. She did cartwheels and backflips. At one point, the game was stopped and three zebra-shirted officials ran toward one end zone. She had shinnied up a goalpost, tightrope walked out to the middle of the crossbar, and was now standing there with her arms raised in a touchdown sign. She was commanded down to a standing ovation and flashing cameras. As we filed out afterward, no one mentioned how boring the game itself had been. No one cared that the Electrons had lost again. In his column next day, the sports editor of the Micah Times referred to her as the best athlete on the field. We couldn't wait for basketball season. Was it a Hillary Kimball backlash? Several days after the birthday song, I heard a shout down the hallway. Don't! I ran. A crowd was gathered at the top of a stairwell. They were all staring at something. I pushed my way through. Hillary Kimball was standing at the upper landing, grinning. She was holding Cinnamon, the rat, dangling by its tail over the railing, nothing but space between it and the first floor. Stargirl was on the steps below, looking up. The scene froze. The bell for the next class rang. Nobody moved. Stargirl said nothing, merely looked. The eight toes of Cinnamon's front paws splayed apart. Its tiny, unblinking eyes were bulging black as cloves. Again, a voice rang out. Don't, Hillary. Suddenly, Hillary dropped it. Someone screamed, but the rat fell only to the floor at Hillary's feet. She sent Stargirl a final sneer and left. Was it Dory Dilson? Dory Dilson was a brown-haired ninth grader who wrote poems in a lo loose-leaf notebook half as big as herself and whose name nobody knew until the day she sat down at Stargirl's table for lunch. 
Next day, the table was full. No longer did Stargirl eat lunch, or walk the hallways, or do anything else at school, alone. Was it us? Did we change? Why didn't Hillary Kimball drop the rat to its death? Did she see something in our eyes? Whatever the reason, by the time we returned from Thanksgiving break, it was clear that the change had occurred. Suddenly, Stargirl was not dangerous, and we rushed to embrace her. Calls of Stargirl flew down the hallways. We couldn't say her name often enough. It tickled us to mention her name to strangers and watch the expressions on their faces. Girls liked her, boys liked her, and most remarkable, the attention came from all kinds of kids, shy mice and princesses, jocks and eggheads. We honored her by imitation. A chorus of ukuleles strummed in the lunchroom. Flowers appeared on classroom desks. One day it rained and a dozen girls ran outside to dance. The pet shop at the Mickamall ran out of rats. The best chance for us to express our admiration came in the first week of December. We were gathered in the auditorium for the annual oratorical contest. Sponsored by the Arizona League of Women Voters, the event was open to any high school student who cared to show his or her stuff as a public speaker. The microphone was yours for seven minutes. Talk about anything you like. The winner would move on to the district competition. Usually only four or five students entered the contest at MAHS. That year there was 13, including Stargirl. You didn't have to be a judge to see that she was far and away the best. She gave an animated speech, a performance really, titled Elf Owl, Call Me By My First Name. Her gray-brown homesteader's dress was the color of her subject. I couldn't see her freckles from the audience, but I imagined them dancing on her nose as she flicked her head this way and that. When she finished, we stomped on the floor and whistled and shouted for more. While the judges went through the charade of conferring, a film was shown. It was a brief documentary about the previous year's state finals. It featured the winner, a boy from Yuma. The most riveting moments of the film came not during the contest, but during its aftermath. When the boy arrived back at Yuma High, the whole school mobbed him in the parking lot. Banners, cheerleaders, band music, confetti, streamers. Pumping his arms in the air, the returning hero rode the shoulders, rode their shoulders into school. The film ended, the lights went on, and the judges proclaimed Stargirl the winner. She would now go on to the district competition in Red Rock, they said. The state finals would be held in Phoenix in April. Again and again, we whooped and whistled. Such was the acclamation we gave her in those last weeks of the year. But we also gave something to ourselves. Chapter 9. In the Sonoran Desert, there are ponds. You could be standing in the middle of one and not know it, because the ponds are usually dry. Nor would you know that inches below your feet, frogs are sleeping. Their heart beats down to once or twice per minute, they lie dormant and waiting, these mud frogs, for without water their lives are incomplete. They are not fully themselves. For many months they sleep like this within the earth. And then the rain comes. And a hundred pairs of eyes pop up out of the mud, and at night a hundred voices call across the moonlit water. It was wonderful to see, wonderful to be in the middle of we mud frogs awakening all around. 
We were awash in tiny attentions, small gestures, words, empathies, thought to be extinct, came to life. For years, the strangers among us had passed sullenly in the hallways now. Now we looked, we nodded, we smiled. If someone got an A, others celebrated too. If someone sprained an ankle, others felt the pain. We discovered the color of each other's eyes. It was a rebellion she led, a rebellion for rather than against, for ourselves, for the dormant mud frogs we had been for so long. Kids whose voices had never been heard before spoke up in class. Letters to the editor filled a whole page of the school's newspaper's December edition. More than a hundred students tried out for the spring review. One kid started a camera club, another wore hush puppies instead of sneakers. A plain, timid girl painted her toenails Kelly green. A boy showed up with purple hair. None of this was publicly acknowledged. There were no PA announcements, no TV coverage, no headlines in the MICA Times. M-A-H-S, students astir, individuality erupts. But it was there. It was happening. I was used to peering through the lens, to framing the picture, and I could see it. I could feel it in myself. I felt lighter, unshackled, as if something I had been carrying had fallen away. But I didn't know what to do about it. There was no direction to my liberation. I had no urge to color my hair or trash my sneakers. I had just enjoyed the feeling and watched the once amorphous student body separate itself into hundreds of individuals. The pronoun we itself seemed to crack and drift apart into pieces. Ironically, as we discovered and distinguished ourselves, a new collective came into being a vitality, a presence, a spirit that had not been there before. It echoed from the rafters in the gym. Go electrons! It sparkled in the water fountains. At the holiday assembly, the words of the alma mater had wings. It's a miracle, I gushed to Archie one day. He stood on the edge of his back porch. He did not turn. He pulled the pipe slowly from between his lips he spoke as if to Senor Seguaro or to the blazing mountains beyond. Best hope it's not, he said. The trouble with miracles is they don't last long. And the trouble with bad times is you can't sleep through them. It was a golden age those few weeks in December and January. How could I know that when the end came, I would be in the middle of it? Chapter 10 all my resistance to putting Stargirl on hot seat vanished. Okay, I said to Kevin, let's do it. Schedule her. He started off. I grabbed his arm. Wait, ask her first. He laughed. Right, like she's gonna say no. No one had ever said no to the hot seat. Any reluctance to answering personal or embarrassing questions always yielded to the lure of appearing on TV. If anyone could resist that lure, I figured it would be Stargirl. That day after school, Kevin came at me, thumbs up, and grinning. It's a go. She said yes. First, I was surprised. This didn't fit my impression of her. I didn't know that this was an early glimpse of something I was soon to see much more of. Behind the dazzling talents and differentness, she was far more normal than I had realized. Then I was elated. We yipped, we high-fived, we saw visions of our most popular show ever. This was mid-January. We set a date of February 13th, the day before Valentine's. 
We wanted a full month for buildup. With my resistance now gone, I jumped in with both feet. We planned a promo campaign. We got art students to do posters. We jotted down questions for Kevin to ask in case the jury ran out. Fat chance of that happening. We didn't have to post the usual jury notice. Dozens of kids volunteered. And then things changed again. In the courtyard of our school stood a five-foot sheet of plywood in the shape of a roadrunner. It was a bulletin board, strictly for student use, always taped intact with messages and announcements. One day, we found the following computer, computer printout taped to the plywood roadrunner. I pledge allegiance to the United Turtles of America and to the fruit bats of Borneo, one planet in the Milky Way, incredible with justice and black, bre- black bean burritos for all. Handwritten across the bottom were the words, this is how she says the Pledge of Allegiance. No one had to tell us who she was. Apparently, she was overheard in homeroom as we said the pledge each morning. As far as I knew, we were not a particularly patriotic bunch. I didn't hear people saying that they were offended. Some thought it was funny. Some giggled and nodded knowingly as if to say, there she goes again. On the following mornings, more than one kid was heard reciting the new pledge. Within days, a new story wildfired through the student body. A senior girl, Anna Grisdale, lost her grandfather after a long illness. The funeral took place on a Saturday morning. For a while, everything seemed routine. The crowd of people at the church, the line of cars with their headlights on, the smaller group clustered around the grave for the final farewell. After the brief graveside service, the funeral director handed everyone a long-stemmed flower. Upon leaving, each mourner laid his or her flower over the casket. This was when Anna Grisdale first noticed Stargirl. Though her own tears, through her own tears, Anna could see that Stargirl was crying also. She wondered if Stargirl had been at the church as well. Even more, she wondered why Stargirl was there at all. Could she have been friends with her grandfather without Anna's knowing it? Anna's mother asked her who the unfamiliar girl was. Afterward, the mourners were invited to Anna's house for lunch. About 30 came. There was a buffet of cold cuts and salads and cookies. Stargirl was there, chatting with members of the family, but not eating or drinking anything. Suddenly, Anna heard her mother's voice. It was no louder than the others, but it was different. What are you doing here? Sudden stillness. Everyone staring. They were in front of the picture window. Anna had never seen her mother so angry. Mrs. Grisdale had been very close to her father. They had built an addition to their house so he could live with them. She glared down at Stargirl. Answer me. Stargirl gave no reply. You didn't even know him, did you? Still, Stargirl said nothing. Did you? And then Anna's mother was flinging open the front door and pointing, as if banishing her to the desert. Leave my house. Stargirl left. Danny Pike was nine years old. He loved to ride the bicycle he had gotten for his birthday. One day after school, he lost control and plowed into a mailbox. He broke his leg, but that definitely wasn't the worst of it. A blood clot developed. He was airlifted to Children's Hospital in Phoenix, where he was operated on. For a while, it was touch and go, but within a week, he was on his way back home. All this was reported in the Micah Times. 
as was the celebration when Danny arrived at his home on Pinion Lane. The five-column photo in the Times showed Danny on his father's shoulders, surrounded by a mob of neighbors. In the foreground was a new bike and a big sign that said, Welcome Home, Danny. It wasn't until days later that the front page photo appeared on the Plywood Roadrunner. We gathered around to see something we hadn't noticed before. An arrow from a thick red felt-tip marker pointed at one of the tiny faces, crowded into the frame. It was the face of a girl, beaming as if Danny Pike or her little brother back from the dead. It was Stargirl. And then there was the bike. The various members of the Pike family, parents, grandparents, each thought someone else had bought Danny the new bicycle. Several days went by before they discovered to their great surprise that none of them had. So where did the bike come from? High schoolers who heard the story and saw the picture had a pretty good idea. Apparently, the Pikes did not. The bike became the focus of a family squabble. Mr. Pike was mad because nobody he asked would admit to buying the bike, and probably because he hadn't done it himself. Mrs. Pike was mad because no way, not for at least one year, would she allow Danny back on wheels. One night, the new, still unridden bike wound up at the Pike's front curb with the trash cans. By the time the trash collector came the next day, it was gone. Danny got a BB gun instead. The Pledge of Allegiance, the Grisdale funeral, the Danny Pike affair, these things were noted, but they had no immediate impact on Stargirl's popularity at school. Not so with cheerleading and the boys' basketball season.